while you're here, I'm assuming, and I think it's safe to assume, there's probably been a little bit of curiosity spiked in your life about what God is like. And, and I guess we're really, we're really aware that particularly in Australia in, the, you know, in 2019, very rarely do people have an empty plate when it comes to their idea of what God is like. People don't just rock up and go, never heard of God. Mostly we come with full plates, with ideas and experiences and opinions and thoughts that other people have shared with us. And so hopefully there's been some intrigue and some interest as to what God is like. And what we've been trying to say over the past few weeks, we're doing our best to unpackage what we've discovered and what we've seen um, kind of outworked in people's lives. We don't pretend to have all the answers, but we are 100% on the most honest and authentic journey we're trying to be on. And so we're so so that you've want to be part of this. And so again, if you're a member of Suncoast Church, and the majority of you are, uh, I'm so grateful you've been leaning into this series and hopefully been growing through it. So part three tonight. Now I want you to, for a moment, do a mental exercise. Okay, you're with me? Great. And you at home, if you're watching home, you can do this too. I want you to remember back, if, if you can, all the way to when you were in kindergarten. Are you with me? Or whatever it was that was preschool for you, okay? Uh, any New South Wales people here tonight? I went to kindergarten in New South Wales. Okay, cool. So I, was in kindy, I went to kindy, I think, in uh, 1990 is when I was in kindy, okay? So uh, I don't have heaps of memories. I don't know if you do. Maybe some of you was only like six weeks ago or something. You were there. But it was, for me, it, wasn't that, it, was, it felt like a long time ago. And so I don't know what I meant by that joke. That's why it wasn't funny. But needless to say, I remember one of the most clearest memories I have from kindergarten was uh, we would do, and maybe you had this in your school growing up, is we would do what's known as show and tell. Anyone have show and tell in school that would do that? Anyone? Great. Okay, cool. So you, you, can, you can give a feedback if I ask questions. So, uh, so show, it was really cool. The reason I love show and tell as a kid growing up is because it was like the one moment that the teacher moved out of the way and let the kids do all the talking. And as a kid that consistently had on my report card, Jonathan is a nice student. He just talks a lot. I figured I'd make a living out of it, but also that's why I just love the moment that uh, we got to talk in class. And so, so um, it was show and tell where people got to bring in something from their childhood or from like a present they got or someone they got from a travel and, and kind of have their moment in the spotlight where they could share something cool they had or something they did and have the evidence to show the class. Now, I was pumped for my turn. We were kind of on a roster and there was like one kid a week that got their turn to do this. And so it was finally my turn to get up and, uh, and I was on, you know, the kind of roster to go up and do my show and tell. But the day came around and it was my turn. And the teacher goes, okay, it's show and tell time. And it is Jonathan's turn. I was, com- I was completely caught off guard. I, I'm sure I was told, but knowing me, I was definitely not paying attention. And so I didn't realize that it was my turn. And so I had nothing to show for show and tell. Now, if you're like five years of age, that's like heartbreaking for you, right? You're like, it's my turn. So I figure, well, I don't have anything to show, so I've got to put on a show. Right? I've got to give my colleagues, my friends here in class something. So although I didn't have anything to show, I was like, I've got to at least tell something. So it was my big moment. So I got up before the class, and I've got to give my friends something to talk about. So this is what I had to share with. I'll never forget this. This was when I was literally five years of age, and it's pretty much all I remember from kindergarten. I said, I got in front of my class, and I said, okay, I go, for today, what I want to share with you is an incredible story that happened to me. Yesterday afternoon, my dad and I, we went to America and we shot and killed a lion. And we brought it home last night and ate it for dinner. And that is why I don't have anything to show because we ate it all. That was my story. Clearly a lie, like the worst lie you've ever heard before. And, and even the, my colleague, my, my, why am I calling colleagues? My classmates, <laughs> even my class. Yeah, that's what, you know, five-year-olds call their friends at school. He's my colleague. Jimbo, you know? So even my classmates are like, as if that really happened, I swear it did, I swear it did. But here's the thing, we all know, you know this already, that it's one thing for someone to tell you 
a story or to tell you what has happened. It's another thing for someone to show you what has happened because you and I all understand this. Showing proves, showing proves. And so rather than simply telling us how it is, when you have evidence, when you have something to illustrate, to show, and again, this isn't complicated. I'm just setting the scene for tonight. This is what I want to look at when we talk in terms of what God is like because what makes Jesus unique amongst all others and all others who taught on God and all others who pointed to God throughout all of history isn't simply what he said and isn't simply what he spoke. It's what he showed. And this is so, so important to understand about why we keep leaning towards Jesus as the truest picture of what God is like. Because Jesus, and this is so important to understand this distinction, Jesus simply didn't turn up on the scene of history 2,000 years ago out of nowhere and just kind of say, hey, everybody, Look at me, I'm someone important. Watch me, look at me, listen to what I have to say. It was quite the opposite. Jesus was expected. Jesus was predicted. Jesus was prophesied. And so Jesus came as a fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus came as ultimately as a fulfillment of a promise. And so rather than being like what many other kind of religious leaders and teachers throughout history who had nothing to back them up, they just kind of came and said, take me at my word, I'm important. Jesus simply didn't just tell he showed. And so for the entirety of his life, he fulfilled every single ancient prophecy that the Jewish people had about the coming Messiah, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. And he fulfilled them all. And in fact, the only time where Jesus, we can see from the gospels, that Jesus overtly confirmed verbally that he indeed was the King of Kings, the Savior of the world, is when all of his disciples had abandoned him, he was hours away from a crucifixion. He was standing in front of his accusers and the Roman oppressors, and they were, they were pushing him and pushing him to, to kind of confess. And when no one else was around, so the threat of an uprising based in his defense was gone from happening, he finally said, yes, I am the son of God. Yes, I am the savior of the world. Prior to that, Jesus didn't say it. He showed it. And this is remarkable to understand. This is what I want to do tonight. I want to look at three distinct events throughout history that took place both in the Old and New Testament, where we see how Jesus uniquely fulfilled a promise that happened long ago. And so rather than Jesus just coming and saying a whole lot of things, it's what he did that proved it. He didn't just say it, he showed it. And so the promise that Jesus fulfilled, it began roughly about 4,000 years ago with a man you might be familiar with his name, Abraham. And we read right back in the very first book that we have in our Old Testament known as Genesis in chapter 12. This is how God reveals himself to Abraham. Now, this is amazing because prior to this moment with Abram, who eventually got renamed Abraham, it, the best we can tell, it seems to be that um, the, the knowledge of what God was like was largely forgotten to the world. And so God is like, I need to show again the world what I'm like. So he found an inconspicuous, non-popular, non-rich, non-famous, non-powerful person, seemingly random, a guy named Abram. And this is how the story goes. This is in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to a land that I will show you. Now, the reason that's important is in the ancient world, and if you've studied ancient history, you've even seen the films, your people... Okay, your country, your father's household, that was everything to someone. That represented your security, that represented your safety, that represented your future, that represented protection, that represented your livelihood. So for God to turn up and say to Abram, I want you to leave all that is familiar, all that is comfortable and all that is secure for you. This is one of the original asks for someone to take what we'd kind of refer to as a step of faith or a leap of faith to simply trust God, to let go and to trust. So this is what was happening with Abram. Leave your father's household to a land that I will show you. 
I will make you into a great nation. This is eventually the nation we now know as Israel. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. It goes on. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. You've got to catch this. This is really important. And all peoples, how many people? Amazing. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God gives this promise to Abram. And this is so important because this, is, this, this applies to your life. This applies to my life. A promise that, was, that the whole world would be blessed by. Now, what is particularly unique about this? And again, if you've looked at history and you've probably seen all the movies, okay, the purpose of setting up a nation or nations particularly were not set up to bless other nations. And here God would put aside Abraham and go, we're gonna create a nation through you and it's gonna be a blessing to all the other nations. None of the ancient nations existed to bless other nations. You've seen the movies. Nations existed to beat other nations, right? Nations existed to dominate other nations. Nations were protecting themselves from other nations. No nation on earth ever existed for the purpose of being a blessing to all the other nations. This was God's plan. He's saying, I want to show the world what I am like. And so I need to find someone who's seemingly not known. I'm going to take him out from your countrymen and your people, and we're going to create something new. And this nation is going to be so unique, and this nation is going to be so special. And he said this, I'm going to make you, I'm going to make you into someone, and I'm going to bless you remarkably. And out of what I do in your life, Abram, we're going to set up this whole nation. Now, this is amazing to understand these two dynamics that, that God spoke to Abram here, two specific things that came with the promise. Number one, he said, I'm going to make you into someone great. So I'm going to make you. And number two, I'm going to bless you. Now, these are really important to understand because they have the huge, the huge flow and effect to our lives tonight. This idea of that when you choose like Abram to trust God with your life, there's these two promises that come with it. Number one is that God will make you into someone brand new. He won't just fix you and he won't just give you kind of like a makeover with some makeup and some hair and some new clothes, right? This isn't an outward thing. This is something that is radically new. I don't know, some, you know, you know those movies that are like the, the extreme makeovers and like it's cool kind of the rags to riches stories and some people love those films. In fact, the only way I can ever manipulate my wife into watching any film with me is they kind of say, it's like a makeover. But then I like trick her into watching like Captain America or something like that. And it's kind of like a makeover, whatever it might be. Uh, or like Peter Parker into Spider-Man or whatever it is, right? This is different. This is something deeper. It wasn't I'm going to make you look different. It's I'm going to make you different on the inside. Something about you will change and it's going to stand out. And the second thing he said is I will bless you. And again, this blessing was bigger and so much broader than this idea of material possession. Although often that does come with this package, but it was way more than just a material thing or money or finances or land. It was a blessing that was so deep and so real and so personal that ultimately people will look at who you have become and who Abram had become and go, who is it that the God that you worship is? Because you have been made into someone so unique and someone so different and you are blessed beyond recognition. Now, this is amazing because out of Abram then came this nation. And this is what's remarkable about this nation is because I didn't, God's plan for the nation of Israel that came from Abram wasn't that the nation would fit in, wasn't that the nation would be like all the other nations. Again, nations were there to dominate one another, not bless one another. So God set this nation aside and he called it holy. It was to be a holy nation, to not like all the other nations. Now, the term holy simply means to be set apart or set aside or different. So when we often sing songs, and if you've been around here long enough, you've probably heard a song or two where we sing, holy is the Lord. It's often singing, God, you are not human. You are beyond the human ways. You are bigger than human ways. You are better than the human ways. You are holy. And this was God's plan 
for Israel. Now, again, I'm giving you the scope of history to understand how we got where we are today with what we see God as like. So God sets up a holy nation to bless the world. Now, understand, understand for a moment how radical this is. Because we look at often, particularly in the Old Testament, there's 613 different laws that God gave the nation of Israel. And these laws were to be followed so that the nation would be different to all the other nations, that they would be holy. Now, let me break it down to just 10. You might be familiar with the Ten Commandments. So even if you're not particularly from a Bible background or a Christian background, the Ten Commandments is one of the most foundational documents in which we even got referred to the J. J Jdo Christian ethic, which where Western culture kind of got built on. And so, so for example, there's a law in, in the Ten Commandments that says this. It's radical, so don't miss it. It says, don't murder people. Now think about it for a moment. Why did God have to write that down and say, this is a law? Because in the ancient world, life was cheap. Killing people came quickly. If someone ticked you off, it's like, let's wrestle with swords. You're dead. And that was it. Life was taken, right? So you were offended by someone, people go and kill them. So God's like, this nation's going to be different. So he wrote a law. It's it's a radical idea, isn't it? Who's grateful this law got written, written, right? He goes, murdering people, don't do it. And like, really? So we shouldn't do that? That's right. Here's another one. Don't cheat on your spouse. For real? Because like everyone does that. No, no, no. You are going to be different. We're going to be different. Yes, be faithful. Okay, here's another one. Don't lie. But I always like to get out of trouble. Yeah, but you guys are going to be different to all the other. You're following me, right? So God put all these laws in place so that this nation would look different, that this nation would stand out from all the other nations. And the reason is that because God says, I want to show the world what I am like. So I want a nation that's going to be unique. I want a nation that's going to stand out. I want a nation that is going to be so blessed that the people live with so much blessing and peace and harmony and life that all the other nations go, who is the God of that? nation, because as a nation, they've shown the world what he is like. But then something happened that kind of changed the tactic here. And what I'm about to wrap up in the next two to three minutes is essentially you, if you're interested in this and you want to kind of in your own leisure time, you can go ahead and read it for yourself. But there are six historic books in the Old Testament known as First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles. And you can enjoy yourself and read them to your heart's content. It's amazing. I think, can we slow that up just for reference wise so people can see it? Here's the six different books you can read in your own time, but I'm going to kind of sum it up for you. So here's this nation set aside to be unique, set aside to be different to all the other nations. And up until this point, the nation had been ruled by what was known as judges. So pretty much every different generation, there'd be a particular leader. They're usually a leader who's really, really smart or really, really good at leading people. That's kind of how it happened. So they kind of rose to the ranks and they started leading. But then the people started crying out to God for a king. They started looking around at all the other nations and they were like, all the other nations have kings. Why can't we have kings? God kind of replied, well, I thought I was your king because we're going to be different, right? And I go, no, 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 that's, that's cool, God. We're tight, but all the other nations have kings, so we want kings. And God's like, trust me, you don't. And they're like, no, 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 we really, really do. Again, I'm, par- I'm paraphrasing, okay? I'm, I'm squishing six books into like six minutes. But they're like, God's like, okay, but you need to, and God warned them. He said, here's the thing. He goes, if you get a king, if you want a king, I can give you a king, but you're then going to have all the other problems that come with having a king that all the other nations have. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, he's going to start taxing you. You're going to have to start giving at least 10% of all your money, of all your crops, of all your grains, of all your livestock, of your children. Your children are going to be signed up to his armies so they can fight on behalf of the king and you won't have any say in it. And they're like, uh, yeah, no, but we still want it. He goes, okay. You can be like all the other nations with the king if you want. And like, yeah, we will. I guess, fine. So they get a king. 
It didn't exactly go according to how they would like because as soon as they had the king, they started having problems like all the other nations. But anyway, second king comes along and his name was David. And David was an extraordinary leader. And again, you're probably familiar with David, kind of the David and Goliath guy, even to this day, the nation of Israel, the flag is the star of David. So pretty prolific figure from history. But David was an amazing leader. Had, they settled wars all in the region around them. So they were, they were living in peace. And a moment happened where, and again, you can read it in the six books that I highlighted before. David stops and he looks at the own temple he was living in and realized that God, or at least what represented the presence of God in the nation, was residing in a tent or what is known as the tabernacle. And David, the conversation David had with God goes kind of like this. He goes, God, here I am living in this big, beautiful palace when you're here residing in a dingy old tent. And God kind of replies, I'm fine with the tent. Tent means I'm movable and I don't really have a location. I'm kind of everywhere. Remember, I'm like the God for all peoples on the earth. He's like, yeah, yeah, God. But like, it doesn't seem right that all my other buddies have these big glorious temples for their God and you're kind of in this dingy little tent. And God's like, I'm not insecure, right? I'm not trying to like compensate for something. I'm doing fine. So, so I, don't, I, don't, I don't need a tent. I don't need anything built for me. I'm global, right? And he's like, yeah, yeah, no, no. But all my other king buddies have temples. And God's like, fine, you can have a temple. And so he relents and they go about building a temple. So the third king, Solomon, was able to build this temple. And here's kind of like a, a likening of what the temple to look like. We have, a stri- in those books, there's like detail after detail after detail of how it would have looked. So there it is. But God gave him one condition about building the temple. And again, remember the whole idea of setting up this nation in the first place wasn't that it would look like all the other nations with temples and kings. It was supposed to stand out so that God was able to show the whole world what he was like. Anyway, they get a temple like all the other temples, all the other kings. But God said, there's one condition. This temple, it's not that you're going to have something that all the others lack. It's the opposite. This temple will lack something that all the other temples and all the other nations and all the other kings have. It's going to lack an image. And God said, you will not make an image. I don't want any, any engraving. I don't want any carving. I don't want any statue. I don't want anything made out of clay, anything made out of stone or wood or straw or painting. You cannot box me in. So I do not want an image. And, David, and you know, as you can imagine, the kings are probably ticked off going, well, all the other guys have statues and images. And God's like, no, because I am not like anything in this world. You want to know what I'm like? I'm not like anything else. I am the point of reference for everything else. I don't look for a point of reference because all the other ancient gods, they had to draw reference. It kind of looks like a camel with a horse or it kind of looks like a man and a bird and wings and arms. And so all these gods look like something else but God's like, nothing looks like me. I am unlike all else. I'm not human. I am holy. And so it's getting across this picture to the world again that you can't box him in. And again, this is a principle we can learn about God when, we understand, when we're trying to ask this question, what is God like? Here's what I want you to know. You can't box God in. Now, on a side note, we can, like we often do, or more like we box him out of our lives. But here's the idea. God's saying, don't put limits around me. Don't say, God, this is what, you know, God, this is what you're like, and this is as good as you can only ever be, and this is as powerful, and this is as loving, and this is as involved as you'll ever be. And God is always trying to get across this idea. Don't box me in. I'm bigger than you realize. I'm more faithful than you realize. I want to be more involved than you realize. Don't set limits. Don't set boundaries for me. Don't say, God, you can kind of have this much of my life, but nothing more. Don't make the mistake that the ancients did and box God in and give him an image. And here's often the issue when we often come, particularly conversations like this, and whatever your particular background is, is we often get given, don't we, pictures or images of what we think God is like at least in temperament or at least in character. And here's what I want to challenge you is don't ever allow your idea of what God is like to be in a fixed state. 
to be immovable, to be unchangeable. Allow God to continue to shatter whatever ideas you have of Him. Maybe you were taught an idea of God and maybe it's not necessarily bad, but I would submit to you, it's incomplete. And the idea, you and I, we are people, we are, we are finite. And to, to think that we can put parameters around what God is like, I want to challenge you again. Allow the Holy Spirit to completely shatter maybe perceptions you've had on for a long time of what God is like. I remember growing up in church and I grew up in this church and so the movement we're part of and so faith and doing church and kind of outworking our faith has kind of been practiced with a certain style or a certain way. And it took me getting into my young adult years before I was finally challenged to understand that the way in which I practice my faith isn't the only way. It's not even the best way. And at times I even question, is it the right way? And it took me ages to realize that what I hold on often as precious isn't necessarily what God considers precious. And we quickly take our culture and our upbringing ideas and we make them holy. But here's the thing, our idea of God is not what is holy. God is holy. And He is constantly in the business of shattering the ideas that we hold about Him. Let me put it another way. Maybe for you, maybe for you, you've boxed God into Sundays. And, you know, Sundays is God gets his time in your life. God, I'll give you Sunday service and a rock up. And hey, that's cool. I applaud you and I 100% recommend making being in church community a huge part of your regular routine in your life. But don't box God into a Sunday service. He is so interested in your life and he is so concerned with even the minute and small details of your life. Don't leave him on the bench waiting to get subbed in when emergencies happen. Don't relegate him to the emergencies of your life. If you turn to God when you're you're sick or you need a job or you just need a car park, why wouldn't you invite him into every part of your life? Don't make the mistakes of boxing him in or rather boxing him out of your life. But anyways, they build this temple and Solomon, who was the third king of Israel, um, he finally constructs this temple, but it wasn't the only temple he constructed. You see, Solomon was a slippery character. Again, only the third king of Israel. The guy didn't have just one wife and not just two wives. The guy had 700 wives, all of them. And no one see how insane that is, right? And if that wasn't enough, he also had 300 concubines. The guy was pretty busy, right? Good luck knowing everyone's name. Anyway, every one of those wives came from a different nation. And those different nations had different gods and had different temples. So Solomon, being a husband under 700 thumbs, built 700 temples, a temple for every one of his wives' God. And so here's here's what was really shocking about this. It wasn't that that Solomon built all these temples to the exclusion of, serving God, it's that he built all these other temples in line with what he'd done for God. And so now God was just brought up to the level of all these other gods, at least in, at least in Israel's view, was the same as all the other nations, same as all the other temples, same as all the other gods. And the moment that happened, Israel now looked like all the other nations. And the problem with that is the very reason God wanted to set Israel up in the first place isn't that they'd fit in, it's that they'd stand out. And by standing out, they could then show the world what God was like, but they lost it. And in the same way that that's what was the promise for Israel, this is the same promise for your life. God's promise for you isn't that you would fit in. God's promise for your life and God, what God wants to do in your world isn't so you'd look like and fit in and be comfortable with everyone. God's promise for your life is that you would stand out, not simply fit in. Let me kind of dig into that just for a minute because I think this is important to clarify. Because in the same way that God promised Abram, remember those two things? He said, I will make you, I will bless you. 
We can often think in terms of, okay, God, if you're going to bless me, you're going to bless me. We can often get the idea of God wanting to bless us when we compare ourselves to someone else. Come on, we do this, right? Let's be honest. Like we look at what someone else has and we're like, well, I mustn't be that blessed. That person has that job or that person has that car or whatever it might be. If I can get blessed with what they've got, then I'm finally blessed. But all that's doing is making you fit in. And God's blessing for your life is not meant to be seen in what causes you to fit in. It's what causes your life to stand out. So this is how God's blessing works, is that regardless of what you have or what you don't have, the blessing that comes from your heavenly Father is that irrespective of your haves or haves not, that you would know hope, that you would know contentment, that you would know joy, irrespective of material stuff, that you'd understand the blessing that your heavenly Father brings to your life is nothing that the world can offer. No money can buy it. No person can give it to you. No material can provide it. It is the comfort and the contentment and the hope that comes from God alone. So when God talks about, I will make you, yeah, it's cool. Go ahead and clap. (laughs) If God said, I'm going to make you and I'm going to bless you, it's so much bigger than what the world could ever promise. It is different. It is unique. It is holy. And so this is how God often shows what he is like. He doesn't just change the things and the stuff. He changes you. And you start realizing there's something going on in my life. And why do I find hope and joy when it's like, I don't even have what they've got, but because you exactly, you've got what they don't got. And so Israel stops standing out. They fit in. Their temple gets smashed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. All their people either get murdered, they broke the law, and get taken in exile to Babylon. And so there was no showing anymore. There was only telling. And for the next several hundred years, it was just the prophets telling Israel what God was like. But then something happened. This was the plan all along. It's from Abram to Israel. And then the moment that Jesus arrived, this was God taking matters into his own head saying, I'm no longer just going to tell what I'm like. I'm now going to show the world what I am like. And so Jesus' life, what he did, what he taught, and ultimately his death and resurrection was so powerful and then giving a picture that could be seen in the flesh, what God was like. And, and we've got to take our cues often from those who were there. And this is the incredible thing about what we get to read in our New Testament, the Gospels and then the epistles after it. These are the men who were there and witnessed and saw it and wrote down what they witnessed. And so when they saw the life of Jesus and they saw what he did, what is it that they concluded was happening? Well, check this. This is one of the New Testament letters written to Jewish Christians, and this is the opening lines of the letter. This is only several decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Here's what it says. It says, in the past, and keep in mind, this is like first century AD, right? Those who were there, those who saw it. It says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors, the Jewish ancestors, through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, (laughs) by Jesus. The son is the radiance of God's glory. And you've got to catch this. This is so important. And he is the exact representation of his being. Okay, you've got to catch this right. So those who were there, they understood that although God was showing the world through blessing Abram and then blessing Israel and wanted to show the world what it was like, they understood that ultimately God's representation of what he was like to the world was Jesus. That God clothed himself in a body and said, I'm going to show you personally what I am like. And so those that were there looked at Jesus and went, this is God in the flesh. They understood him to be the representation. Now understand this word representation, okay? 
because like we can take it in many different forms. You, you've probably all met someone that's like a rep from a company or rep from a school. You know, your parents will often say when you go to a friend's house, don't be a bad representation of our family. You eat all your vegetables. Oh, I don't eat vegetables, mom. They're great. Whatever it might be. No, you'll be a good rep. Maybe you play representative sport. Um, a couple of years ago, my wife and I, we went to Turkey. And I don't know if any of you have been there. It's an amazing country to go visit, amazing people. And as we traveled there, we got off the plane and a taxi driver picked us up to take us to a hotel. It was late at night. It was a pretty long drive, about 45 minutes with the taxi driver. But got to the airport, we went to the ATM, got all our money out. So we had the local currency, jumped in the taxi and headed off to uh, a hotel. Now, what I didn't know, and Chloe should have told me, but she didn't. She did her research. Who's the TripAdvisor researcher in your family? Who does the TripAdvising? Great, you guys are amazing people, okay? I now do this as well because... Because, and by the way, Chloe is like a ruthless reviewer as well. So just warning. Anyway, so, yeah. Yeah, don't have your, her, your, your, her, no, there. So Chloe reviewed that taxi drivers there, when they recognize that you're like a tourist and have no idea, they do certain tricks to rip you off. And she's assuming that I understood this. I didn't. So anyway, we're driving to our hotel. He's driving us. We're in the back. He's chatting. He's a nice guy. And I'm following along on Google Maps where our hotel was. And then I noticed he pulls up just at the corner before the hotel. I'm like, this ain't weird. And it's, you know, it's a dark street and it's very much like an alley. I'm just going to put it out. There's a dark alley. And, and he, he pulls and he goes, hey, we're just going to pull up here. I'm like, the hotel's just around. He goes, no, 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 we don't do that. I'm like, okay, weird. So he, he goes, this, this is how much it's going to be. I'm like, right. So I pull out a 50, which is like the 50 in our local currency. I'm like, that'll cover it. So I hand over the 50 to the guy because I only had wads of 50s. And, and he goes, oh, you didn't give me a 50. You just gave me a five and it's holding up a fiver. And I'm like, oh, sorry. He goes, yeah, give me the right amount. I'm like, sorry. So pull out another 50, hand it over. And we're in the back seat, right? And he, and he did it again. He holds up a fiver. And he goes, you just gave me a fiver again. And I was like, oh. And he goes, give me a look at your money. He tells me, he goes, this is how much I need. And he takes a 50 out of it. And I was like, okay. And then he takes a bag then and says, bye. And he speeds off really, really quickly. And I'm like, we just got swindled. And Chloe's like, that's why I was helping you in the ribs. And I was like, I didn't know what was going on. She goes, didn't you read for TripAdvisor? And I'm like, no, I didn't. And he fully condes, right? You're thinking, Jono, you fell for like the oldest trick in the book. I choose trust over suspicion, right? Anyway, so, so the next day we're out and we hit what's called the Grand Bazaar. It's like the oldest bazaar on the planet. And we're like bartering with people and trying to buy things. It was really a lot of fun. And we, we get to this one stand and there's a guy, he would have been around our age, really cool guy. And he actually had a product we wanted to buy. And so we went to like exchange products. He had the product, I had the money. And he's like, ah, oh, probably going to have to get some change with that if you hand it over. And then I recoiled really quickly. And he was like, got taken back that I recoiled quickly. And he could sense that I was, you know, suspect on what was going on. And he's like, mate, what's, what's wrong? Why are you like jumping away and acting freaked out? He goes, oh, no reason. No, I'm not freaked out. He goes, you're clearly freaked out. What's the problem? I'm not going to rob you, man. This is like my business. And I was like, yeah, well, I'm, I'm suspicious. He's like, why? I'm like, well, and I told him the, the experience that happened the night before. His reaction, we'll never forget it. Hey, he blew up, not an ass, but blew up at what had happened. Because he's like, ah, oh, I cannot believe that people treat tourists like that. He's saying he is the worst representation of what we are like. And began to apologize. saying, I'm so sorry that you had to experience that. He goes, please don't judge all of Turkey and all of Istanbul by this one guy. And I'm there going, yeah, I'm definitely judging everyone by this one guy, actually. So, so I was like, he's kind of right. Like, I shouldn't do that. But it shows how important representatives are, right? There can be good representatives, bad representatives. And God just decides, I think the best re representative of myself is myself. And so Jesus turns up to represent to the world, to show the world ultimately what God was like. And here's, this is what's amazing. Again, Jesus didn't come to simply tell the world what God was like. 
Jesus came, come on, say with me. He came to show the world what God was like. And this is such an important distinction because the Christian faith and the Christian message was not birthed out of simply what was taught and what was said. Christianity was birthed out of what was shown. It wasn't a teaching that started Christianity. It was an event. It was an undeniable resurrection that took place that was eyewitnessed by over 500 people that saw resurrected Jesus. And it is hard to argue with the guy who predicted and pulled off his own death and resurrection. And so no wonder people put their lives on the line for this message. People lost their their families. People lost their businesses. People lost their lives for this message. Because when you see a guy who pulls off his own death and resurrection, you generally go with whatever that guy says is true, right? And so this movement started not simply out of what was said, but out of what was shown. And so this, the death and resurrection of Jesus ultimately is what authenticated his teachings. Again, there's been many religious teachers throughout history. Heck, there's still religious teachers around today. I think there's some guy up the road in Kilcoy who goes around trying to say, hey, everyone, I'm important. Jesus didn't come and point to himself. He pointed to the promise that was shown through thousands of years before he got here. His life fulfilled it. And then ultimately his death and subsequent resurrection put a stamp on it and said, job done. This is what God is like. This is amazing, right? And so those who were there, this is so cool. They understood how significant this this was. And 2,000 years ago, they went about spreading this message everywhere because they're like, if this is what God is like, the whole world needs to know. And the Apostle Paul, who planted probably more church in the ancient world than anyone else did in the New Testament, he's a guy who hated Christians. Um, he, he, he murdered Christians and he himself met Jesus and became a Christian. Quite a remarkable story. And he writes this in his letter to the church at Rome to explain what they saw took place through the life of Christ. He said, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. And we understand that, right? Like you can understand if there's someone close to you or someone you highly respect and they're in danger, you would contemplate, maybe I will give my life. You know, parents would consider giving their life for their kids, etc. This is what he's saying here. He's saying that's what people are like. He's saying this is what God is like. This is why God is different. God demonstrates, God shows his own love for us like this, that while you and I were still sinners, Far from God, making every single mistake possible, breaking every law imaginable, that is exactly the moment that Christ died for us. What separated Jesus wasn't that he was simply dying for good people. What made God unique isn't that he laid his life down for those who earned it, because that's a human act. We don't call them godly, we call them heroic. What made Jesus unique is that he gave his life for the world. Those who didn't deserve it, those who wanted nothing to do with God. And this term sinner is obviously such a a broad terminology that can mean so much, but this is how it was understood when they first saw it, is that God was demonstrating something. He was demonstrating something so unique, something so unique about his character, something so unique about his promise, something so unique about who he is. He was demonstrating his love for all of us. Jesus' death was showing the world what God was like. And so if you're ever curious and if you're ever confused and confusion happens to the best of us, man, where we get life happens, events take place and we're like, I just don't understand what's going on in my life. I'm confused about the God thing. Whenever there is confusion, the one thing that will always bring clarity is understand this already for you. God has demonstrated His love for you. 
He's given His life for you. And this is such an amazing news. This is why we keep singing and celebrating. This is why people are studying water baptized 2,000 years later, to know that there is a heavenly Father who loves you so much that He has given His life for you. So here's the challenge to you and I all the time. You've got to test everything by the example of Jesus. When you hear any idea of what God is like, test it by Jesus. Look at the life of Jesus. If you're a skeptic here tonight or someone that's asking questions about faith, if you don't take my word for it, read the accounts of those who are there. Read Matthew, what Matthew wrote, Mark wrote, Luke wrote, John wrote. They're the first four books of the New Testament. Read what they saw. Make your own mind up about it. Look at the life of Jesus to see what God is like. And even when it comes to our methods, not even just our message, but our method, one of the things, and I don't know if you're like this, one of the things that just confuses me to no end sometimes when I see people preaching the message of Jesus, but doing it via a method that sounds nothing like Jesus. They get angry, they get militant, they get demanding, they yell, they're judgmental. And I'm like, I just don't see Jesus himself doing that to people. So even judge our methods by the way of Jesus. I saw this outworked in probably the most practical way. Um, I'll finish with this story. Just this past week, um, I was at a meeting with some local stakeholders about one of the ministries we're all part of at Suncoast called Daily Bread. It's our soup kitchen we run as a church. And Carly and her husband, Boaz, who are here tonight, they volunteer their time to run it. It's an amazing, amazing ministry. And many of you volunteer for it. Many of you cook for it. And we have schools all around the Sunshine Coast that cook for it. Many of you give towards it. And it is, it is, it is purely there to feed people who otherwise have no dinner. We have... Families come together there. We have people living out of their cars, people straight off the street. We have kids come alone there. Like there is just there is just so much pain in our city. And if you don't want to look for it, you'll easily live your life oblivious to what's going on, but it's going on everywhere. And we just figured that these people are seen by God. And if they're seen by God, then they must be seen by His followers as well. And so we see them. We want to feed them. And as we're at this meeting this week with some stakeholders about it, they wanted to suggest some ideas of revenue raising. And it came from, I guess, a good heart. And I'm sitting there with Carly, who runs it. And one of the questions that was posed to her about how we raise revenue, someone suggested, hey, why don't we put like a, 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 like a money tin out the front and those who have some means can kind of donate and give towards it. So, you know, they don't just come and get a free fee, but they can kind of give something to contribute. And I understand, I guess, where it's coming from, as I said, but... Um, in the next few moments, what came out of Carly's mouth just reminded me why we do what we do. Because she said this, she goes, the people that are coming to Soup Kitchen have nothing, nothing. And ultimately, it's even more than this. They don't have food and possessions and stuff. They also just, well, they don't know that God loves them, which is the most truest hunger of a human soul. And some of you might have that hunger in your soul tonight. And you just need to know your Heavenly Father loves you. And she says this, we cannot ask for anything from them. How could we do that? They have nothing for one. Because, but that's not what God is like. Because God doesn't ask anything from us to earn what He gives freely. So we're going to give freely because they need to know that God loves them. And before we could ever tell them that God loves them, we need to show them that God loves them. And so here's my challenge for you this week as we go on with this series. Is what can, what can you do to show the world what God is like and I found this to prove truth time and time again if you're ever confused by it and, and if you're ever not sure 
And maybe, and maybe for you, and I say this as respectfully, but as honestly as I can, maybe for you, the whole idea of God for you has gotten stale, gotten old. And that's, that is a tough place to find yourself in. Here's what I want to challenge you to do. Is while you're trying to figure out what God is like, get busy intentionally showing someone else what God is like. And it is amazing how it will remind you of the love your heavenly father has demonstrated to your life through giving his life for you. So heavenly father, we are so grateful that that's the way you love us. We're grateful that you showed us and we still all these years later find ourselves here looking at that amazing event that changed the world, but it's still changing our lives. I pray tonight, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to bring clarity to all of our lives about what God is like and where there's wrong belief or maybe maybe life has happened that it's caused a distortion or just the wrong understanding of what God is like. Heal that. Even right now, Holy Spirit, I pray you do it in people's lives. You bring clarity again where there's been tears that have kind of blurred the eyes of people. I pray you dry those tears where there's been intense pain or maybe rejection or maybe a bad example set. I pray tonight, Holy Spirit, that you turn that around. You'd breathe a fresh picture on every one of our hearts of what a heavenly father is truly like. And you would remind us again just what great love was demonstrated to us that day on the cross. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you were encouraged by what you heard and inspired to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. Hope you can join us again on the next podcast or here at Suncoast Church.